a trusted voice of truth and light. The narratives that mislead most of us aren't outright lies. They're the deliberate omission of facts that could give us a more complete picture. And a rally point for those who've accepted the reality that they are not sheep. The world needs your leadership, and the essence of leadership is using your influence wisely wherever you happen to be standing. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, I want to welcome you to the show where we revel in wrong think. That doesn't mean you have to be an unpleasant person. It just means if somebody's telling you, think this, say that, stand here, do that, wear this, you might want to question it. You know, nicely, of course. Hey, I'm very pleased to welcome a special guest. Sean Kamak is a researcher and freelance writer. And, Sean, we have to congratulate you because you recently completed your master's thesis, and we're going to spend some time talking about it. Tell us a little bit more about yourself, who you are, and what you do. Sure, yeah. I'm, I'm really happy to be here, Brian. I, um, <clears throat> I just finished up my master's at the University of Chicago. Um, I do some freelance writing uh, in, in addition to that. Um, and my, I'm a student of cultural psychology there. And my thesis, my, my primary research project while I was at school, um, was studying the Evergreen State College affair of 2017. And I'm, I'm, I'm not sure. I'm sure your listeners are somewhat familiar with this because um, this made big, big news a couple years back when it happened, where there was uh, big student protests on campus. Um, a professor was pretty aggressively accosted. Um, and the, the, the fascinating thing for me was that they, they recorded so much footage of themselves doing this. So I took all this, you know, about 20 hours of footage and studied it over the past year and, you know, ended up writing my thesis about it. And it's a, it, you know, for, for as, as scary as it was, it was a fascinating, um, sociological phenomenon, I'd say. I remember when this happened, but the only takeaway, I mean, I haven't thought about it a lot over the last three years, but the thing I remember is uh, this poor professor and students just screaming at the top of their lungs. It didn't matter what this professor tried to say. It was just, you're wrong. Uh, I, I, it seems like, as I recall, it was a, the professor was a white man, and you know, basically his white male privilege precluded him from having any say whatsoever in what they were doing. And to me, that was kind of the... To, that's that's the image I get in mind when when I think oh this is this is what social justice warriors act like and I'm painting with a broad brush but um, you you kind of took a deep dive here Sean into the the worldview that underlies the whole social justice movement. Right. Yeah. So I'm. Um, so in in the discipline that I I spend most of my time in, um, the maxim sort of of cultural psychology, is that culture and psyche make each other up. So there's this real emphasis on morality, ideas surrounding morality, ideas surrounding the self, metaphysical ideas, just just ways sort of ways that people think about life and how those ideas underpin their action, their social organization, th things of that nature. Um, so my aim with this was to look at what they were doing, look at how they were organizing, look at, look at how they were regulating their sort of little micro society and find the principles that underlie this and understand the moral considerations and the fundamental beliefs of, of their worldview, um, which is quite an extensive, quite an extensive project, but um, I, I really enjoyed it. And I, it, it helped me, and something I hope it does for other people, is it helped me to better understand what happened at Evergreen. Because like so many, when I was looking at these videos, I was 
you know, pretty enthralled and shocked, but I was really confused. I just, I didn't get why they were doing this. Um, and now I think, I think I get it. Um, and I, I think that research can help other sort of campus light, similar events on other campuses and might be able to tell us a little bit about broad, broader ideas and broader ideology regarding social justice and things of that nature. So what were the major takeaways that uh, came out of your study? Right. So I, there's, I characterize their belief system. Um, and I, I suppose I, let me, let me actually say this before I do that is the way that people have talked about evergreen and have, have tended to talk about similar sort of events is they, they either, they, they usually do it sort of out of intellectual history. That's the kind of the discipline is they look at the, the postmodern intellectuals, they look at it in terms of like, um, Marxist philosophy or, or like black feminist philosophy, black nationalism, things like that. Um, and not that, not that there's necessarily anything wrong with looking at it like that, but what I wanted to do is to characterize this belief system in a way that doesn't necessarily affirm what they believe, but just tries to understand the structure of, of how their beliefs are. So I, I know that's kind of a wordy way, but but my main takeaway out of their belief system is, is, is this. This is what I think the belief system is. It can be characterized by five basic parts. And the first one is ethno-race consciousness. So ethno-race consciousness was an idea developed by Ann Wortham, who's a sociologist back in the, the, the 80s, recently retired. Um, and the idea is that a, a person uh, fundamentally perceives himself not as an individual, but as a part of a larger ethnic collective. That's their, their basic idea surrounding how they see themselves. Wow. And when, yeah, and, and when you, the, the implication of that is pretty interesting because if you think that people aren't individuals, if you think they are only representatives of co larger ethnic collectives, then any interaction across ethnicities becomes intercollective. It's not me, a white guy, talking to someone else, a black guy. It's a, it's white people talking to black people as collectives. And that can get kind of tricky because, I mean, people aren't – like pe people are different. They're, they're, you can't just understand someone based on the color of their skin. You know, People used to call that racism, but that's kind of the, how this belief system sees the self and sees individuals insofar as they do, I suppose. You know, the thing that, that comes to mind when you mention ethno-race consciousness is that sounds like a very solid way of establishing that um, identitarian politics is just another form of collectivism in that it's looking at the collective over the individual. And I've, I'm one of those weirdos who maintains, look, the big, the big divide in our time is not red versus blue state or Democrat versus Republican. It's the collective against the individual. And, and that's, that's precisely what at least I seem to see play out in, in a lot of the uh, social justice drama that, that we see on, on line. Yeah, that I, I, th I think you've got that exactly right. Um, and I know, like, I, I know what I'm researching here is a, it's a left-wing kind of philosophy or left-wing ideology. But what I described there, you can see the same thing on the far-right identitarians. They yep. see the world the same way. So I, what I, I don't want people to think that I'm just hammering on against lefties, but I, this is just sort of my case study for understanding it. Um, but no, I think you're exactly right. I, I think the, the, the big tension today is a sort of 
let's say, liberalism based in the individual and some sort of collectivistic, totalitarian sort of thinking. And that that goes on both the left and the right. There's certainly agreed. What what were some of the other takeaways? Right. Um, So this was an interesting one because I I looked at um, like their moral foundations and you might you might have read and heard of Jonathan Haidt's work in in um, the book uh, The Righteous Mind. He, he researches moral foundations. So there's this idea of that, and, and his advisor also did some work in, in, in morality. And the idea is basically that um, moral ideas about morality underpin how people see the world and how people act in the world. So You've heard of like honor moral cultures or dignity cultures regarding morality. Um, And there were a pair of sociologists, um, Bradley Campbell and Jason Manning, who uh, did some research on what they called victimhood culture. This book came out, I think, two years ago. Um, And I've used this to understand Evergreen. And the basic idea that I think that I see in Evergreen is this victimhood morality. The idea is that he who has been victimized is is he who is the most moral. It's that there's a moral meriting of people who have been made to suffer and a reciprocal demeriting of people who victimized them. Now, when you pair that with ethno-race consciousness, right, it, it gets way more complicated. It, get, it gets way more interesting, I think, because it's not just that an individual has been made to be victimized and therefore he has some moral status. It's that his collective and his ethnic collective across time has been made to suffer. Therefore, they have some sort of moral status, um, which can be, it's a, you know, to put it simply, it's a sins of the father kind of way of looking at the world. Wow. Now we're coming up on our break here in about 30 seconds, but a quick question for you. Um, Is this where guilt becomes a weapon? I mean, if I'm not a part of that uh, that collective uh, group that's been, you know, oppressed, um, I'm supposed to feel guilty, though, right? I mean, I'm sp- I, t- technically, I guess I'm part of the oppressor class. That's exactly I, that, that's how they would see that. Uh, that's how they would see that. Yeah, it, I, I think that is definitely a mechanism that motivates people into this way of thinking. It's sort of satiating that that maybe pathological guilt, maybe not, but satiating that sense of guilt. Okay, Sean Kamak is my guest. We're going to talk about this a little bit more, the Evergreen Affair, if you remember that from about three years ago. We'll be back right after these messages. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Once again, welcome to the show. I want to mention that our sponsors today include Firesteel, as in firesteel.com, as well as the Staples Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage. My guest is Sean Kamak. He is a graduate student. Or actually, Sean, I don't know. Are, is the graduate student work done? You're it's ne- all done. Okay. Yeah, it's all done. I'm just waiting for the diploma to get in the mail. <laughs> Sean was a graduate student and uh, at the University of Chicago. His, uh, his thesis was The Evergreen Affair, A Social Justice Society. And I think it bears mentioning, Sean, you did not undertake this research for the purpose of, you know, creating the sickest burns ever, you know, for, for the social justice wars. <laughs> you sincerely wanted to understand 
Where are they coming from? Can I ask what what prompted you to seek that kind of understanding? Well, uh, I mean, yeah, I, you're, you're right. I didn't like. I don't think these these. I don't think the people that I studied are are my enemies. Um, I just find them fascinating individuals, and I and I really do want to understand the way they see the world for a couple of reasons. One, maybe they're right. You know, you got to consider that maybe they see the world in, in, correctly, accurately, and the only way you know that is if you truly understand the way that they see the world. And then I, as an individual, can sort of adjudicate and say, well. Is that how I want to see the world or not? Um, but also, you know, and, and this is some pushback, a little bit of pushback I got throughout this process and, and from some people after I've, I came out with this thesis. Um, it, it's that, you know, I don't want – I'm not trying to bully these people and I, I'm, I'm not trying to – to score zingers on them. Um, and I, and I, if someone reads the piece, you'll, you'll know this. I have a whole section in it where I talk about just the, the sake for the sake of neutrality, the way that I approach this, no one's my enemy. No one's my friend. I just, I'm a researcher and I have these subjects that I really, really wish to understand. Um, but yeah, I got a little bit of pushback through the research process. Um, one of the people who is, um, uh, helping me sort of, uh, in, in, at Ushika in my department, um, she saw, she was a little bit upset with some of the language that I used to describe them. And she kind of disagreed with the idea that I could actually be neutral. Um, but that was at least my aim. And I, and I certainly, there, there might be a sentence or two in there that maybe it comes off as more critical than I wanted it to be. But my commitment at the very least with this research was I am going to try my darndest to just be straight down the middle, neutral. I'm not trying to be critical. All I want to do is understand this, th- these people who I find so fascinating. That is a tall order. And, and I'm, <laughs> I'm proud of you for, for approaching it the way you did. I mean, look, I, I am a repentant red, former red meat thrower, um, I, I learned a long time ago, you can generate a very large and loyal audience by throwing red meat, by giving them people or things to be angry about. Uh, and the more demons you give them to wrestle, the more people will love you for it. I don't know why that is, but it really works. However, when you have anger in a situation, and I, I know I'm kind of stereotyping here, um, I see a lot of anger wherever there are many social justice types gathered. Um, sometimes there's something legitimate behind it. And I, I don't I'm not saying that I have to agree with them necessarily, but I feel that if, if I want to be a decent human being, I may have a duty not to bring more anger into a situation than there already is. Does that make sense? Uh, no, ab- absolutely. Absolutely. And people people can be angry like there's there's plenty of things to be angry about in, in this world. There's plenty of unjust, you know, things that happen. There's there's plenty of that. And it's OK to 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 channel that anger productively but the the problem that i see and that's something i don't want to contribute to here is sort of directing yourself through life based on anger like just just to find some political person to hate and you make your whole life about that political person or or you know as much as people in you know the quote-unquote social justice ideology might hate people on the far right there's also people on the right who make their living hating social justice warriors you know that that and i don't i don't want to do that either i'm just you know i'm a researcher i all i want to do is understand them um and you know i unfortunately 
when you describe something as I have that is stripped of its sort of moral content, let's say, I, I'm not describing what they believe in terms that they fully agree with. Um, I'm not using their language to describe their belief system is kind of how I want to say that. Um, it can come off as criticism, but because you're describing something in a way that's sort of stripped down and it doesn't quite have the same emotional resonance that they want it to. But that's just a risk of studying something that's important to someone. It, it, it might come across as you don't really care about it. It's like, I do. I just, I don't feel it the same way someone else sees. Uh, I don't, I don't see it the way someone else feels it rather. Um, but yeah, the, the aim is just to understand. And I, I don't want to, I don't want to promulgate hate. I don't want to promulgate anger. I, I just want to promulgate better understanding. That's it. Sean, what's the biggest takeaway? And by the way, I'm linking to your thesis. I, I, I'll put a link in the show notes. My listeners can access that at the Brian Um, what do you want people to take away as they, as they go through your research and as they see some of the, the things you were able to uncover, what would you like to see happen? I understanding understanding you know just just you know i i'm sure that your listeners don't hold the same worldview as the people that i studied and the aim that i would what i want what i would want to come out of that is just for them to understand how a reasonable good person might might end up thinking these things and how they're not a bad person just because of what they think. They just might have ideas that you think are bad, but you know, they're still people and treat them with the dignity and respect that we should treat every single, you know, everyone else. Okay. No, I think that, I think that's a very, it's a worthwhile goal. Um, at some point, I would love to see people not feel the need to, uh, I don't know, uh, confront or at least bend other people to their point of view. And I'm, I'm with you in the sense that I see this all across the political spectrum. It's not just those on the left. Um, it seems like the, the political left may be a little bit more bold right now. And I'm referring like to Black Lives Matter and some of the, the different protests out there. Uh, and Antifa seems to be pretty active in, in some areas. But then again, that's just from watching media. I think if I were to go into most U.S. cities, if you were to airdrop me into, you know, the average city across the country, I'm guessing life would probably look pretty normal for the most part. Yeah, I, th I, I think you're right. Um, no, you, you're right. I, I think there are I, – I get the impression that there are wider trends on the left towards a sort of radical totalitarian ideas, radical totalitarian ideologies. Um, and that you should, you should definitely reject that. You should definitely reject totalitarianism. Um, you should, you should try and think for yourself. Um, so if someone, if someone's trying to make you just buy into their belief system, um, you know, at, at any cost, don't, don't do that. Consider what they're thinking about before you do so. Um, but I, you know, Brian, I think, I think you're right. I think most people, um, in their day-to-day -day life are lovely. They're not radical. They're not, you know, they're, they're, they're normal folks. Um, and that's, I think something that I, I think I miss that sometimes because I consume a lot of media. I'm, I'm on Twitter and I see the extreme versions of this. And as, as much as it's, it's a concern and as much as we should, uh, take care to recognize and understand it, um, Twitter and the media, it's not real life, right? There's real people and, and real people are, by and large, lovely, normal folks. The fact that uh, this whole thing started with Evergreen State College, um, we've got about one minute here. Give me your thoughts on uh, college campuses. Are they going to continue to be kind of the uh, the focal point for, for this kind of uh, conflict? 
I, yeah, I, I think they are. I absolutely think they are. Um, and I'm not, unfortunately, I'm not particularly optimistic about college campuses um, because like the, there's other people who do research on, you know, the, the, the intellectual history, the, the sort of uh, philosophical grounding of these ideas, uh, the philosophical texts that ground these ideas. And, and those are in the social science departments of our universities. Um, and I don't see that going away anytime soon. And unfortunately, I think a lot of the the people who are big bulwarks of free expression and you know and academic pluralism, um, ideological pluralism. I think those people are going to retire eventually, and the people that replace them are not going to be so so friendly towards um, diverse viewpoints and, and alternative views. So, unfortunately, yes, I think the universities are going to keep chugging along like they are now. Okay, Sean Kamak has been my guest. I'll have links to his website and his thesis. Thanks, Sean. Thank you, Brian. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, once again, I thank you for being a part of my audience. And by the way, if you find something of value on this program, tell a friend about it. Go subscribe. If you feel inclined, drop a few bucks in the donation kitty. You'll find that at our uh, Anchor website. And you can subscribe by going to my main website, thebrianhydeshow.com. I also want to thank my sponsors, and they include firesteel.com. Look, I'm, I'm all about preparedness, not because I believe the end of the world is upon us. Although some days, <laughs> some days, <laughs> I'm not so sure, but... Primarily, I just like to be prepared for whatever comes down the pike. And I've seen this happen enough times in my life. There's a weird feeling of satisfaction. Yeah, you might even call it smugness that comes along when something unexpected comes up and you're prepared for it. It could be, you know, the lights go out in the middle of the day and you're, the whole building is dark and the power's off, as will sometimes happen. And, you know, someone says, oh, my gosh, you know, we have no light. And I reach into my pocket and I... Have a little, uh, you know, pocket flashlight. Yeah, it's it, it's kind of a thing, and and I and I take it as a great compliment. Most everywhere that I have worked in the last uh, fifteen, twenty, maybe twenty five years, whenever something went wrong, people would turn to me. Well, Brian would have one of those. That I kind of like having that reputation. So, with that being said, the fire steel. Fire starters are something I would encourage you strongly consider having something like this in your 72-hour kit, in every vehicle that you own, in, uh, you know, your, your serious emergency preparations. We're talking about a flint and steel, except this uses these incredible rare earth minerals that throw a magnificent spark and can get a fire going in almost any conditions. It doesn't matter if you just fell in the river and everything is wet. Sorry, your book of matches is destroyed, but your fire steel will still work. In fact, you can get enough sparks out of one single fire steel to light about 15,000 fires. How many books of matches or boxes of matches or lighters, for that matter, would it take? Just go to firesteel.com when you get to check out, because I, I know you're going to want to purchase one of these, maybe, maybe several for people on your gift-giving list. Put in the word Brian, B-R-Y-A-N, at checkout. That's the coupon code. They'll give you a nice discount. And be sure to tell them you came because I was going on and on about them. Speaking of preparedness, got a great article here from my friend Suzanne Sherman. Uh, This is on readiness and finances, how to strike a balance. I think 
a lot of people got this huge wake-up call back in mid-March. Do you remember when the toilet paper was suddenly off the shelves? And not just the toilet paper, but I mean everything suddenly was being snapped up. Panic buying. I will never forget the night my wife came back from the grocery store. She and the kids just went to go grab an ice cream or something. They were just, ah, let's run to the store and grab a treat. And they came home and their eyes were wide and they were just like, oh my word. People were, were running around pulling two shopping carts along at once with just this deer in the headlight look in their eyes trying to figure out what do we do? What do we do? Because it hit them all at once. We are underprepared. And I don't know very many people who feel like they're 100% on top of it all, didn't have to worry. But I'll tell you this, it was nice not having to go to the store in those early days to know that we had the option of, of not having to race down and get something. Well, except for dog food. That was that was bad, my bad. That's on me. But for a lot of people, the stress now is how do we pay for all the things that we know we need, but we have to get in a compressed amount of time. And so they have to balance self-reliance with their finances. I mean, what good does it do to, you know, buy up all this food storage or all these survival supplies and then you don't have to file bankruptcy? Suzanne Sherman says, one of the first things I'm asked when I start to talk to people about self-reliance is finances. How expensive is it to get started? How soon will I start saving money? And how much? And her answer is always the same. That depends. She says, ask yourself, what are your goals for yourself and your family? I mean, if you want to grow a few vegetables and you already have a spot in your yard, it might be as simple as buying some seeds or starter plants. Assuming success, well, you'll certainly save money on tomatoes, which she says is her gateway plant to self-reliance. But soon, she says, I have more tomatoes than I could eat, sell, or give them away before they went bad. So I started to process and freeze them. So far, other than investing in some freezer bags, no major expenses. And the same can be said for crops like zucchini or basil or parsley, etc. She says the best way to get serious about self-reliance is to start by educating yourself. Watch videos online. Many are free or purchase a book to keep with you. Now, she says, I prefer books as I like to have easy access to them at all times. And she says when she first started, she purchased a how-to style book with a comprehensive discussion of preparedness topics and soon realized she wanted more and more instead of just living the life of a prepper and to know how to deal with emergencies. She wanted to to be as self-reliant as she could be. Now, listen to what that means. She sold her home in California, moved to a remote location in the mountains of Utah where she could pursue a lifestyle reminiscent of the older frontier-style ways. I mean, I've heard this referred to as like a downshift, but it's not a, it's not a downgrade in your quality of life. It's a conscious decision, which may mean more work or a little more effort on your part to provide for your needs, but it also means the freedom that comes along with it. And because, Su- because Suzanne is one of my uh, most dear freedom-fighting friends, uh, I, I know this is what was motivating her. So she says, you can see the two extremes of, these, of this spectrum with infinite variations in between. Starting with a garden, you may find yourself needing to purchase some gardening tools, fencing off an area, maybe installing some irrigation, or even purchasing a greenhouse. If your goal is to have a net gain financial interest, this may take some time. So if finances are an issue... She says, start small, keep it simple. Maybe start a co-op with some friends and share your harvests. Now, there are also investments in equipment needed to preserve your harvests, such as dehydrators, hot water, pressure canning equipment, vacuum bags and sealers, and, of course, the largest investment, a food dehydrator. 
But again, she says you can form a group and share the equipment, spreading out the cost, and it's a great way to work together, forming a community and building friendships. Now, just as a quick aside, some of the deepest and most trusted friendships that I have made in the last quarter century have been friends that I met when we would go and just, I mean, this this was our idea of date night. We would meet up as couples and we would go to the church cannery near where we lived and spend time canning dried apples, spaghetti, oats, rice, sugar, beans, popcorn, just, you know, unpopped popcorn. But you really get to know people and you get to see who has that self-reliant attitude. You see what their work ethic is. And some of the best friendships that I can count are those that, uh, that were formed in that, uh, they were forged in that fire of, of helping each other get prepared. And we would, we'd help each other because there was a fair amount of labor. But you uh, spread it out with a little bit of teamwork and you could get so much done. And I, I know it sounds weird and I accept the weirdness that uh, some may want to put on me for this. But there's something to be said when you were wheeling a big hand truck out there with, you know, case after case of these basic preparedness items and you've canned them yourself, you put them up and there's just this feeling of accomplishment like this is good. This is really good. This is a little peace of mind that we're going to put in the van or put in the truck and take home and and put aside for a rainy day. Now, Suzanne, Suzanne Sherman says, if you want to raise animals from backyard birds to livestock, well, the investment's going to get a little bit greater from purchasing or building a shelter to keep them safe from predators to feeding them. And again, she asks, will the end result yield a profit? That depends. But such a goal will likely require a financial and time commitment that not many may not be willing to make when starting out, which takes us back to education. And again, she reminds you that the place to start is by reading books, following websites with videos and articles that focus on your goals. She says, when I moved here, I decided to replicate life as closely as I could to a family living a frontier lifestyle. So reading about the history and ways of the Old West, that was a great source of inspiration. She says, for me personally, becoming self-reliant was never purely a goal to save money, although I have certainly saved in some areas by stocking up on items as a hedge to inflation, purchasing goods on sale, and growing bumper crops like lettuce and tomatoes, assuming you don't have large setup expenses. She says, the ultimate gain has been a sense of satisfaction and accomplishment, particularly when I see my friends and family enjoy the fruits of my labor and having friends who happily trade with me for the fruits of their labor. The ultimate benefit will not be having to rely on sources over which I have no control if the time comes when food and other supplies we take for granted are not as easily acquired. Think back for a minute to March and think about what she just said. Not having to rely on sources over which you have no control if the time comes when food and other supplies that we take for granted are not as easily acquired. There could not be a more clear voice of warning in that sentence. And she says, please feel free to reach out if you have any questions, if you find my advice useful. There's also a donate button on the homepage of her website. And there is a link, which I have graciously included in the show notes. You can get the get the show notes by going to the com and reading this article and sharing this article from my friend Suzanne Sherman. All right. The hour is moving along nicely. We'll be back just the other side of these messages.
This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. All right, welcome back to the show. By the way, I want to just say a quick and kind word for my friend John Staples and his wife, Heather. They are the Staples-Turner team at the at Patriot Home Mortgage. I know as crazy as things are economically right now, it is a marvelous time for you to consider a refinance on your mortgage. Or maybe you're looking for a new home. There are a lot of people who are like, hey, this is, this is the time to get out there and get that new home. Patriot Home Mortgage may have started small. I think it was something like 23 years ago in St. George, Utah. Was it that long ago? I know they're 23 states strong, though. They have grown and grown. They have the professionalism. They have the the magnitude to make things happen for you. And best of all, they have the personal experience. And I want you to go to staplesmortgage.com, staplesmortgage.com, and let the Staples-Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage do for you what they can do to make your dreams come true. They are marvelous people, and I'm very proud to have them as sponsors of The Brian Hyde Show. All right, I'm going to open the lines up here in this last few minutes of the show, 801-331-8113. Also wanted to share with you a couple of thoughts about how Americans are, well, they're growing less willing to beg for permission to make a living. And I think this is a good thing. This isn't just the COVID-19 lockdowns, although it certainly has exacerbated the problem. Officials claim doing business is a revocable privilege. You do not have the right to do business. You have to jump through this hoop and pay for this license and beg our permission. But many Americans see it as a right that they will exercise with or without licenses or permits. And I think that that is actually a good thing. I know some people are already, oh, that sounds like anarchy. This is what J.D. Tusil has to say on Reason.com. He says it appears that government imposed restrictions on travel, business and social contact don't become more palatable with age. As the COVID-19 pandemic continues to simmer, the one competency that officials have consistently displayed is in tightening the screws using the licenses and permissions they require as enforcement tools. For people who are tired of being bossed around, he says the obvious response is to carry on without the government's imprimatur, and they're doing so in droves. And he says it's an attitude likely to live on long after the the, uh, crisis has passed, rather. Chris Pallone is the co-owner of a Fort Worth bar that was one of more than 800 such establishments to open in defiance of Texas closure orders. And Chris said, our businesses are doomed. He said this at the end of July. We have nothing to lose. We can either fight this thing or we can starve ourselves out. Now, J.D. Tusil says as apocalyptic as that sounds, it's a reasonable statement when the review site Yelp reports that 55% of all businesses shut during the pandemic are believed to have closed their doors forever. For many entrepreneurs, breaking the rules may be the only way to survive. That the rebellion among Texas taverns is alive and well is obvious from a desperate-sounding open letter issued last week by the Texas Alcoholic Beverage Commission, or TABC. Recently, we have spoken with business owners who tell us they don't intend to follow the orders, wrote A. Bentley Nettles, the commission's executive director. 
When a business tells TABC it doesn't intend to follow these orders, you leave the agency with no option but to revoke your license and shut you down. End quote. Wow, this is this is kind of reminiscent of the wife beater who, after beating his wife, tells her, you made me do this. Now, the letter contains much huffing and puffing about how it's a privilege to be in the booze business, subject to following politicians' dictates. <laughs> but that's what government officials always say when they impose licensing requirements on people trying to make a living. Then feeding yourself and keeping a roof over your head becomes subject to jumping through hoops, paying fees, and, of course, keeping the right people happy. Now, when one out of four U.S. jobs requiring an occupational license not to mention the business licenses, liquor licenses, and other forms of official permission that businesses must pursue, make, legally making a buck can become a precarious activity, even in good times. It just gets that much more, it gets that much worse, rather, when a crisis drives politicians into frenzies of panic and power lust, with the authority to grant and revoke permissions a tool for imposing their will. New York Governor Andrew Cuomo snarled back in June, we've gotten 25,000 complaints to the state of businesses that are in violation of the reopening plan. 25,000 complaints. He said a bar or restaurant that is violating these rules can lose their liquor license. State liquor authority inspectors are out. We have a task force of state investigators who are out. You can lose your liquor license, and that is a big deal for a bar or restaurant. Yeah, well, maybe it's not such a big deal for one that's already being told your business isn't essential. Maybe. J.D. Tusil says among the jurisdictions that have threatened or actually revoked licenses for businesses violating lockdown orders are New Jersey, Pennsylvania, and Clark County, Nevada, just to name a small sample. The affected businesses include barbers, car washes, furniture stores, gyms, and smoke shops, all requiring government permission to legally operate. Now, here's the catch. But operating legally isn't the only way to do business. Good luck says Bob Martin, a 79-year-old barber in Snohomish, Washington. That's what he told officials when they said they were going to charge him $90,000 in fines for trimming hair after his license was pulled and in defiance of state closure orders. Gym owners in Belmar, New Jersey, broke into their own establishment and resumed serving customers after authorities forcibly closed the place. The defiant owners of Attila's Gym kicked in plywood panels that had sealed the entrance to their Browning Road business since Monday, drawing cheers from a group of flag-waving supporters, reported the Courier-Post. And, of course, there are those 800-plus bars in Texas serving customers despite orders to the contrary. Officials in Los Angeles have run into so much pushback, now they're threatening to cut water and power to businesses and homes that don't comply with lockdown orders. So depriving people of electricity and running water seems an unlikely means for improving public health. I mean, isn't that what we did to the Iraqis, right? To help them, to help starve them into submission, to get them angry enough to kick Saddam Hussein out. But yeah, you go ahead, uh, Mayor Garcetti and other Los Angeles city officials. Let's see how that works out for you. Maybe you'll get the same warm treatment Mr. Saddam Hussein did. But officialdom says J.D. Tusil is always more interested in compelling submission than in achieving re reasonable outcomes. But submission's harder to come by when the stakes are so high. Government is actually ordering people to refrain from earning their keep and instead to humbly submit to bankruptcy and beggary. To some, submitting to the rules can look foolish and suicidal, like baring your throat to a predator. And he says, once you've battled government officials threatening your ability to make a living during hard times, 
Why would you assume after the crisis passes that they've suddenly become wiser and better disposed to your well-being? People who have questioned the officials' judgment and defied their orders are unlikely to lose that habit after the pandemic passes. Sure, they'll probably continue to apply for licenses to operate just to make life easy. But they'll remember that officials tried to strip them of the privilege of putting food on the table, and they'll realize just how dangerous it is to rely on such permission. He concludes by saying, It's too much to hope that licensing and permitting the licensing and permitting apparatus that politicians have carefully constructed over the years will soon be swept away by a righteous wave of public revulsion. Big changes are hard, and the permission state that we live in will almost certainly still formally exist in the years to come. But people aren't going to be so eager to ask permission, and they'll be much more willing to live their lives in its absence. Now, again, I know for some people this is making you nervous. This is making you feel like, oh, I don't know if we should do that. I don't know if that's, that's the right thing to do. What's the alternative? Just continue submitting and continue handing control and power over your life to bureaucrats or politicians who by now you should know don't really have your best interest in mind. See, I'm not calling for any kind of violence. I'm not calling for any kind of let's go out there and victimize the consumers. I'm saying I think they are absolutely within their rights to do whatever is necessary to stand up to those power-hungry officials and to disobey them. Civic disobedience. Frankly, I'd love to see occupational licensure uh, dwindle. Used to be one in 20 people was required to have an occupational license in in order to, to do their work and to earn a living. One in 20. Now it's one in four people have to have some kind of permission from the state. And it's not all high-end stuff. Well, Brian, would you want a heart surgeon, you know, to just be freelancing it? Oh, I'm not even talking heart surgeons. Some woman wants to braid hair. Oh, you'll need to get a cosmetology license. You want to be a security guard? Yeah, you got to have one of those, too. It's crazy. And it can be abused, as we saw last week when Ammon Bundy had his truck impounded because he didn't have a commercial truck driving license and was bringing watermelons to drop off to a customer. See, I may be a little bit uh, cynical here, but I think behind that uh, we're concerned for your safety facade are a bunch of bureaucrats who are concerned more about we're not getting our cut. Oh, and you need to kiss my ring. Show some respect. This is The Brian Hyde Show.